This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. During her eight years at the White House, Michelle Obama became known for her frank, personal speeches, which often drew upon her childhood growing up on the south side of Chicago. For most of those eight years, the First Lady shared what was on her mind with the help of speechwriter Sarah Hurwitz, who joins us today. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you joined the Obama campaign after working as chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton during her 2008 run for the presidency, and you also have done speechwriting for Al Gore and other people. What are some of the first steps? that you take when you start to write for someone new? How do you get inside their head? So I think, first of all, you know, if they've written a book or anything like that, it's really important to read that just to get a sense of their history, their biography, how they think about things. And I find it's also very helpful. Any past speeches they've given, really important to read those and to watch those. But most of all, I think the best way to get to know how someone speaks is to speak with them, you know, just to really sit down with them informally and just talk with them in a kind of natural setting. And then you'll really get the sense of their natural cadence of their voice, how they would normally speak. And as a speechwriter, that's really what you're trying to capture, that kind of true, authentic way that they speak. Now, you actually started out, you wrote, you started out doing a little bit of writing for President Obama. And then for most of your time there, you were exclusively the speechwriter for Michelle Obama. Was there a big difference between writing for the two of them? I mean, was there a different way you approached it or just different things that they preferred to do with their speeches? I know they were also very you know, going at it from very very different goals in a way because of different jobs. Right, exactly. I would say, you know, every person I've written for just has a unique voice. You know, every it's mm-hmm. everyone is unique. You, it's really hard to compare them because they just each have such a, a special way of speaking that's so particular to them. You know, I will say the, the roles of president and first lady are so different sure. because the truth is if there is some kind of crisis, you know, people don't turn to the first lady, they turn to the president. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing for the president, things tend to be much more last minute, things tend to be more volatile, they they tend to change very quickly. Whereas when you're writing for a first lady, you tend to have a little bit more time, you know, she can really be more proactive, because she doesn't have to be reactive to things that are happening in the news. And so that gives you a little bit more kind of leeway and wiggle room as a speechwriter to, to pre- prepare. And I, I appreciated that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know you told the Washington Post that by the end of your time with the First Lady that you could kind of hear her voice in her head almost critiquing the things as you were writing. And I wondered, with your process for writing for her, did you have kind of like a tickler file? Like, would sometimes she say something that you'd kind of file away for later? I mean, how did you did a, I mean, did a lot of things that she would say over the course of time, like eventually end up in a speech or with, what were the processes like for the each different speech? Yeah, I mean, typically for a big speech with Mrs. Obama, we would just I would start by sitting down with her and just saying, what do you want to say? And, you know, Michelle Obama knows who she is and she always knows what she wants to say. Mm-hmm. So she would just always have a very clear idea of what the speech was going to be about. She would dictate language. She would lay out the themes that she wanted to hit. She was very clear and very prescriptive. So I would always walk away with a real sense of what the speech was going to be. So, you know, then it's really my job to come up with a draft. And then she would really heavily weigh in and line edit. And, you know, people often will say to me, oh, Sarah, that was such a great speech. And I never feel comfortable saying thank you because it's not my speech, right? It came from her. She really, you know, worked on it from beginning to end. So it's a very much hers. And while I certainly helped, you know, I I don't feel comfortable claiming credit for it. Right. Now, um, were there times where like something she would say months and months earlier would sort of come back around and end up in a speech later? Sometimes, yeah. She might be telling me something that she wanted to say in one speech. And for whatever reason, maybe it didn't fit in there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a month down the road, I'd think, oh, she, she 
mentioned that really great idea for that other speech, but it fits perfectly here and I would I would use it. So I would often, if she said, told an interesting story or pointed to an interesting quote, I would kind of just mark it for myself and then maybe come back to it. Now, one of the most famous phrases that's come out of one of Michelle Obama's speeches was during the, her speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, she talked about in her speech, she used the phrase, when they go low, we go high. Mm-hmm. And that really caught on. So we're going to hear a clip of that real quick. And then I just wanted to ask you, like, what is the story of how that phrase came into being? And what was your reaction when it really just took flight all over the world? How we explain that when someone is cruel or acts like a bully, you don't stoop to their level. No, our motto is, when they go low, we go high. Well, you know, it's funny, the phrase, when they go low, we go high, that came directly from Mrs. Obama. That was her phrase. My only contribution to that phrase was literally to type it into my laptop. That was it. Um, And I remember thinking, that's a really nice line. It's really moving. It's a really beautiful summary of who she is. Um, So I liked it. I didn't, I had no idea it was going to catch on the way it did. I had no idea. And I was, I was thrilled when it did. You also wrote Hillary Clinton's concession speech during the 2008 campaign. And during that speech, she referred to putting 18 million cracks in what she called the highest, hardest glass ceiling. And I was wondering what the process was like to write that speech, because I would think that, you know, on the one hand, something was ending. I mean, she wasn't going to be continuing the campaign. But on the other hand, you know, you want to talk about the progress that has been made, that it is a very significant thing that she got as far as she did being a woman. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was a matter of really balancing those those competing aims where it's really honoring what's being achieved, the history that's been made, the excitement that she had captured across the country. And it's also making clear to people that this is ongoing. This isn't an end. It's a beginning. And also doing a really full-throated endorsement of then-Senator Barack Obama. You know, that was a really important part of the speech as well. And she did that. She did it beautifully. And I think she really made a powerful and very passionate argument to her supporters about why he she, they should support him. And then, as you remember, he hired her to be his, her, his secretary of state, and she did a magnificent job. You're listening to The Knowledge of Wharton Show on Sirius XM Channel 111. We're here today with Sarah Hurwitz, who was speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. Now, the ability, the ability to communicate clearly, I mean, we don't, Most of us are not going to be giving speeches in front of world leaders. We're not going to be giving speeches at the Democratic National Convention. But, I mean, we all are communicating all day, every day. And I think it's something that's often pretty underappreciated. You know, you say, I can talk to anybody, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And so, I mean, you're kind of a professional communicator. And what what has that taught you about communication and how to do strong, concise, direct communication that really gets you somewhere. I mean, I think the most important thing, the most important lesson I've learned about speech writing, it's very simple. It's say something true. I think oftentimes when people are thinking about giving a speech, they're thinking, what will make me sound smart or interesting or witty or powerful? Or they're thinking, what does the audience want to hear? And those really shouldn't be your first and most foundational questions. Your first question should really be, what is the deepest and most important truth that I can tell at this moment? Whether you were giving a speech to a thousand people or talking to your board or doing a, you know, leading an informal meeting, it's really important to say something that is clearly and glaringly true. I think that it makes people trust you. It makes them respect you. It makes you – it shows your authenticity and I think that it makes you credible and it's a really it's a really good way to start. I'd say it's also a good way to continue and end a speech. I think just saying something that's very, very true, uh, it's always a good way to go. 
Now, you actually, I mean, you talked about that a little bit in some things you've written recently. So you had written an article for Politico basically talking about the lack of critical response to critical Republican response to Donald Trump. And you'd written in there that the foundational question for any speaker is, like you said, is what is the steepest, most important truth? I feel like getting there, though, is pretty, I mean, you have to be pretty honest with yourself to get there. So how can we really be sort of that honest to get there? And I mean, as a speechwriter, how did you help the people you work with get there? I think the, you know, and you're totally right, right? It is hard to sort of think about what is, the, you know, it's a very tough question. What's the truest thing I can say at that moment? And sounds, it might not be very, what you want to say. Right. It sounds very big. About. So I think a, an important way to get there is just stop writing the speech. Stop worrying about the speech. Just stop and say, if I were just giving this speech to an empty room, but I was just saying the truest thing that I could say, what would it be? And don't worry, you know, the speech will come, but really starting out, what is the heart, the truest thing? And then you can work for there. Maybe you don't say 100% of that thing because it's just people aren't ready to hear it. Maybe you have to kind of, you know, speak it a certain way. But I think starting with that very clear thing that you just know is true, that's a great starting point. Now, tying into that a little bit, I think one of the speeches from the First Lady that really struck me during her time in the White House was the one one that she gave fairly recently, which was in reaction to some of the sexual harassment claims against Donald Trump, where she gave, I mean, she gave a really honest speech. I mean, you know, she really said some things that maybe people, that we don't say in public a lot of times, that maybe we say to our friends, that we say in private, but we don't like to talk about in public. And then what was it, I mean, was that where she wanted to go right away? Or did it take, did you guys have some discussions to get there? Like, what was the process like for that particular speech? Well, she had wanted to talk about the misogyny that we were seeing in this election before the Access Hollywood videotape where uh, Trump was boasting about sexually assaulting women. Mm-hmm. Before that tape came out, she really wanted to speak about the misogyny she was seeing. And she was, she was, we were planning to do that. And then the tape came out and it was just all the more clear. So, you know, that speech to her was, it was deeply personal. It was, you know, some things that she felt incredibly strongly about. And I think that you just saw the emotion in that speech, right? You just saw how deeply she cared about it. And I think you know, that speech was very much her words, her ideas. I mean, just from start to finish, she really, she knew what she wanted to say and, and she got out and said it and, and she said it. Well, now, what do you do? I mean, as a speechwriter, I mean, what do you do when you have speakers that maybe they want to be more private, that they maybe don't want to share as much of themselves as maybe the first lady has, or even I would say the president has told, you know, told stories about themselves. I mean, when you have someone that wants to be more, not closed off isn't the right word, but just, you know, they don't want to share as much of their, about their childhood or about their lives. Like, how do you, is there a way to sort of still get there without having to share as much if you have someone like that? Because I would think if it's not authentic to you to be that way, you wouldn't want to do it. But Absolutely. I mean, I think what's important for people who are running for office or want who are political candidates is, you know, when when potential voters are evaluating them, I think the question voters are asking is, do you get me? Right? Just do you get me? Do you understand where I'm coming from? And I think it is important as a candidate to share a little bit of your personal story so that they can kind of begin to sense like, okay, I see myself in you. And even if your personal story is very different from the voters you're speaking to, which is often the case, I think that everyone can relate to certain things. You know, when it, whether it, if it might be people might have had a very different upbringing than Mrs. Obama But in the Democratic National Convention speech in 2016, when she talked about her daughter's first day of school Mm -hmm. and how, you know, intense that was for her to be sending them away in these big cars with these men, right, the the little faces pressed up against the window. You know, any mom, any dad, anyone who has a child in their life they care about can relate to that moment. You don't have to be similar to her in other ways, but that's such a relatable moment. So I do think it's really important 
for people to, even if they're not comfortable divulging a lot, it's finding one or two things that are relatable. And frankly, if that's still uncomfortable for you, then I think you can focus more on telling the stories of other people, people who you're, you want to serve. Maybe it's you know telling the stories of what voters are going through, if that's something that's more comfortable for you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I do think you have to tie them to your story somehow because voters are trying to decide whether they want you to serve them. Right. I mean, it's really they want to perform a personal relationship with you, even though you might you probably aren't going to meet all your voters. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You're listening to The Knowledge at Wharton Show on Sirius XM Channel 111. We're here today with Sarah Hurwitz, who spent the last, I think it was eight years, as speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. Now, most of us are, we're never going to have our own speechwriters. That would be nice, but we're probably right. not going to. So, but how can we, I mean, we're probably going to have to make a public address sometime or we're going to have to speak to a group of people. How can we be our own speechwriters? How can we, you know, what are some tricks of the trade that we can use to improve the way that we communicate? Absolutely. I mean, the first one I think is just always be sure you're saying something that is just deeply true, something authentic that you feel strongly about. I think the second thing that's really important to remember is just talk like a person. I think oftentimes when people stand up behind a podium, they think they have to give a speech and they kind of start using all these words and phrases that they would never normally use. So in business, you hear people talking about we need to catalyze the leveraging of the unsiloed verticals. It's like people don't know what you're talking about. Or, you know, you see politicians doing this, you know, we need to put hardworking American middle class family values first. And it's this sort of bland, generic politician speech. And it's not relatable. You would never say we need to put hardworking American family values first to your spouse or your friend. That's not how people communicate with each other. So it's important to talk like a person. I also think it's important to show and not tell. I think people oftentimes use a lot of adjectives mm-hmm. as opposed to actually painting a really vivid, moving picture of something. And I think that's it's less memorable. Now, we're there. I know that we around here, we're word when we were writing things here, there are certain, you know, overused phrases that we've kind of banned from our articles because they're cliche. Now, were there things when you write speeches that you've kind of banned from your speeches oh. that, you know, they don't go in no matter what? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the kind of, you know, when you work hard and play by the rules, you should get ahead or healthcare is a right, not a privilege. You know, those are great sentiments. And I, I agree with them passionately. And they're actually very, very important ideas. But I think it's just important to find ways to express them that are more authentic to the speaker and a little bit fresher and that will more resonate with an audience. Now, do you, I mean, you say, you know, people have to go come from this well of what's the most true, of what's the truest thing that you can say. I mean, how much, though, do you take in consideration? You say you shouldn't consider your audience first, but do you need to change anything? I mean, I would think that you have to change a little bit depending on the audience. Oh, you absolutely, no, you absolutely do. And it is an important question to ask, you know, who is this audience? I think, You know, whether you're speaking to a bunch of high school students or a bunch of CEOs or a bunch of senior citizens, obviously this audience has very, very different, you know, perspectives and needs. So it's important to take that into account. But I would I would advise saying the same thing to each audience, but just saying it in a way that's a little bit different so that it accounts for where they're coming from and it acknowledges who they are. I think with any audience you're speaking to, it's important to tell their story. Mm. So I think with, you know, with a lot of speeches that I've written, you know, both for the Obamas and for others, you know, often start the speech by saying, it's so great to be here with you today. You know, I know what you all have been doing. You know, you've been working on this issue or that issue or, you know what, you young people here, like all of you are going on to college. And I know how hard that was and I know how hard you worked. You know, it's really it's honoring them and showing that you've taken the time to learn about them and that you celebrate what they've done. Now, do you have for your do you have a particular writing process that you do? I mean, do you write things longhand? Do you write on a computer? Do you have what are your right. little writing kind of tricks, like not tricks of the trade, but sort of the things that you do to sort of what's part of your personal process? Right. A colleague once said to me, you know, Sarah, 
you just kind of spill out a bunch of total nonsense on a page and then spend a week editing it, which was sort of harsh, but... He was right, actually, to some extent. You know, I do take – I'll take the transcript that I've made of the meeting I have with the principal and I'll add my own notes and ideas and things to it. And then I will just – and that's just sort of these really stream of consciousness notes. And then I'll start arranging that into an outline. And then I'll kind of start arranging that outline into specific paragraphs. And then I'll go through and I'll actually edit each of those paragraphs. And I sometimes get stuck. And when I get stuck, I just move on. I just move on. I just don't allow myself to get writer's block because sometimes I won't know what what I'm going to try to do in paragraph three, but I'll know what paragraph four is going to say so I can go and write that. There are many times when I've actually written the end of the speech before the beginning. So I'm not a super linear writer, but I do stick to an outline that's very well structured. So I know exactly where I'm going, but I might jump around within the outline as I write. Now, when you're absolutely stuck, is there anything you do to – I know that sometimes people always say, and I know it's true with me. If I get stuck, I take a walk. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you do if you're absolutely completely stuck? I mean, are there things that you do to get unstuck? Absolutely. I mean, people often ask me, well, what happens when you get writer's block? And the answer is you get it all the time. It's normal, but you can't indulge it. So it's really because the speech is going to be given two days from now, two weeks from now, whether or not you right? Like it has to be given. So I will often go talk to a colleague and say, hey, I'm stuck. Can you help me out? If I'm just really stuck, sometimes I'll just stop for the night and just try to get up the next morning and look at it fresh. Other times I've actually printed out my draft of the speech, spread it out on the floor of the office and just looked at it that way. And I think that when you do that, you often begin to realize that your problem is structure. Mm -hmm. Things are in the wrong order or you have basically the same idea in two different places. And you can begin to realize, oh, if I just switch this paragraph and that paragraph, the transition's better. So I can get rid of all of this transition language that I've had to try to make it work. Mm-hmm. So I think actually looking at it on paper can be very helpful. It's kind of moving that Rubik's Cube around and seeing. Exactly. Exactly. Now, one of the things you, you mentioned when you worked for the president that often you were doing things a little bit more on the fly with tighter deadlines. How does that process change when instead of having two weeks, two, day, two weeks or two, two days, you might have two hours? Yeah, I mean, that that does sometimes happen. I mean, what and it would happen with the first lady, too, in a, a case where, you know, sadly, sometimes there would be some kind of, you know, crisis event that would happen that, you know, Mrs. Obama wouldn't necessarily be the one responsible for it, mm-hmm. but she would certainly have to acknowledge it. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we were in Cuba, there was actually a terrorist attack the night before that she was speaking. And when she was just she was dedicating this beautiful little bench in a little ceremony in a library with a bunch of children. Mm-hmm. And you know, we st- we had to acknowledge that attack. It was serious. It was devastating. But you know, we found out. I woke up that morning, learned about it, and thought, "Oh gosh, I have to figure out a way to work this into this, yeah, you know, this sort of very, right. this remarks to children." And it's you know, it's it's stressful. It's mm-hmm. very stressful. But you just you get it done. You have colleagues who help you, and you just make it happen. You get used to it after a while. And you, get, I guess, it's better. You have to acknowledge the thing. I mean, you can't Absolutely. not acknowledge it, or that becomes the story. Exactly. You have to acknowledge it. You just have to figure out a way to do it in a, a way that's appropriate for the audience. So again, these were children, so we mm-hmm. had to be a little bit careful about how she did it. Right. Now, one of the things that she, that Michelle Obama kind of became known for in her speeches was that she really did draw a lot on personal stories from her life. She would talk about growing up in Chicago. I mean, she would occasionally tell stories about her daughters. Now, I really I do think that storytelling is one of those things that again is maybe sometimes a little bit underappreciated in how it can be hard to do. Yeah. I mean, how would you say, first of all, like what did you do to kind of help tell her stories or help her tell her stories? Mm-hmm. And how can we also be I mean, how can we in our lives become, you know, use some of that to become better storytellers? I think details are so incredibly important. You know, I think when she tells the story of her father who had multiple sclerosis mm-hmm. and worked at the city water plant, you know, she could say, you know, my dad had MS. He worked at the plant. He worked really hard. He sacrificed a lot. That's all just sort of telling. I don't really see him. But instead, what she said in some of her speeches, you know, 
As my dad got sicker, it got harder for him to get dressed in the morning. And so he would wake up an hour early so that he could slowly button his shirt. He would drag himself across the room with two canes to give my mom a kiss. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2012, she talked about how when he would come home from work, she would see him slowly going up the stairs, lifting one leg and then the other leg to come up into her arms. And, you know, those are these really vivid details that really show how hardworking he was. They show his humanity. They show his sacrifice and his love for his family. And I think those specific details are just critical for storytelling. Did you find that you were often kind of saying, well, now what color was the shirt? And when (laughs) when did he go up the stair? I mean, like, were you doing a lot of... sometimes. But, you know, she usually had the details herself. You know, I didn't usually have to ask a lot. Like, she kind of, she remembered well, and, and I was able to use what she gave me. You're listening to The Knowledge of Wharton Show on Sirius XM, Channel 111, and we're here with Sarah Hurwitz. She is, well, was the speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. And one of the things that I was wondering, you also recently wrote something for USA Today about the importance of and the rigor of the fact-checking that you guys would go through when you were writing these speeches. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a really, it really was an interesting process. I mean, you don't think about these things, but you really made the point there that, you know, just saying that whoever's giving the speech was friends with someone if they're not could be a big a big problem. Absolutely. I mean, in the Obama White House, we knew that every word the president and first lady said had huge ramifications. They, you know, they have a huge megaphone, both of them. And what they say, it goes around the world and it's very heavily scrutinized. And we also felt, you know, we are serving the American people. We have such a heavy responsibility to them to make sure that everything we are saying to them is 100 percent accurate. So we had an entire team of people in our research department who would fact check every word of every line of every speech we wrote. And, you know, that could be a really intense process mm-hmm. because they would often come back to us with these long emails saying, you know, that, you know, we found a statistic that's slightly different than the statistic you used. Where did your statistic come from? Okay, well, let's loop in the policy team. And then we'll have this long email chain where we're all trying to figure out what's the exact right statistic to use. Or just things where, you know, I mean, the example I use in the article is, you know, the president or first lady might say, oh, you know, my friend so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, are they really friends? What's the evidence you have that they're friends? What's the nature of their relationship? How many and times it, have they had dinner? Exactly. I mean, and it sounds, you know, there were times when we as speechers would say like, oh, this is so frustrating. This is so silly. But it, it wasn't silly. It was this. It, the idea was that we had a real loyalty to the people we serve. We had a loyalty to the truth. And we took it very, very seriously. So we spent a lot of time on this process. And we got, you know, the speechwriters got very close to the research department. You know, the fact checkers became our really good friends because we knew they were always out there looking out for us and looking out for the American people. So it was a very important part of our process. Now, I mean, since I mean, during the campaign this year, the presidential campaign, and now even in recent weeks, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the truth and what is the truth and are there facts and are there alternative facts? I mean, do you feel like that the current political climate has blurred the lines of that a little bit? And what what do we do about that? The lines have absolutely been blurred. Um, We have a president who repeatedly makes false claims. It's just unacceptable. And what we do about it is we continuously, repeatedly call it out. We just call it out every time it happens because, unfortunately, I think a lie once repeated enough, people begin to think it's true. And it's telephone. Right. It's telephone. I mean, people it just people begin to think it's true. And it is our responsibility to continuously call out lies and falsehoods for what they are. Now, what do you what, what's next for you? I mean, now that, that your time in the White House is done, what are do you know what you're where you're going to go next? What are you going to do next? Well, I'm a fellow at the Institute of Politics at Harvard University, which is delightful. I'm getting to work with students and teach. And it's so much fun. Um, as for what comes next, I have no idea. I'm really enjoying writing in my own voice, so I think I want to do more of that. Um, And I know, I think I'll always be involved in politics in some way, and I'm just figuring out what that will be. Sarah Hurwitz, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.